This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This episode forms part of our mini-series on the sinking of the Lusitania, that terrible event when the enormous Cunard passenger liner was sunk off the coast of Ireland by a German U-boat in May 1915, killing 1,193 people. This is episode four, in which Lusitania historian Peter Kelly and I explore some of our favourite items in the Lusitania gallery at the Merseyside Maritime Museum. If you need more background on the events, then do please check out the earlier episodes in which you can hear eyewitness accounts as well as a general history of the ship and the disaster. For now, though, we're back again with the excellent Lusitania historian Peter Kelly. Peter is an Irish-born researcher whose main interests are Irish genealogy and European and maritime history during the First World War. His interest in the Lusitania goes back to his childhood when he first read about the sinking of the liner close to where he lived and also discovered that a family friend was a survivor of the sinking. This interest progressed over the years to the point where he now concentrates mainly on researching the lives of all those on board on that final fateful voyage. Peter lives in the southwest of Ireland and is especially interested in communicating with relatives or descendants of those on board the final voyage. So if you have an ancestor on that final voyage, then do please get in touch. I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him as always. Here is Peter, and we are inside the Lusitania Gallery at the Merseyside Maritime Museum. Um, here we are, we're inside now and looking at a, a large picture of a steamship. What's, what's going on? This, this is a magnificent painting. It is a painting of uh, a ship called the Falaba. Three, three feet high and it's, oh, I mean... It's about six feet, six feet by about four and a half feet, about that. But it's it's beautiful painting by um, Gerald Morris Byrne. It's oil and canvas, 
and you have a, a lovely port scene at the back there. I'm not sure what port it is, it's but it, it's, is it Liverpool with that yeah. building? Yeah. So, uh, oh, it is Liverpool. Yeah, we've got Liverpool in the background. In the uh, foreground, we've got a, um, a large steamship, big black hole, painted red just by the waterline, um, three decks, white decks, one funnel belching out black smoke, uh, a couple of masts. Not a very large ship, but um, uh, a very sort of well-to-do one. There are a few figures um, on the decks there. Um, it's a, it's a, we're looking at their clothes, they're very well, well, well dressed. It looks like a Victorian scene almost, maybe um, um, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. So the Falaba, why is this important? Well, the Falaba is important because this, the sinking of this ship in April, about three weeks before the sinking of the Lusitania on the 7th of May, this sinking, the sinking of this ship very nearly brought the United States into the First World War. Ah, so it already, this, <laughs> already nearly happened. Yes. Now, what was happening in America was you had the submarine uh, war going on around the British Isles, and this was affecting American trade and also American lives. So you had the newspapers, uh, the media in America, congressmen, House of Representatives officials, they were all saying that if one American life was lost as a result of the U-boat actions, America should declare war, President Wilson should declare war. And lo and behold, the Falaba is sunk, and American life, a man by the name of Leon Chester Cheshire, Treasure, was lost. And where the Falaba then comes into it is, Treasure's remains were recovered in County Kerry in the southwest of Ireland, and he was presumed to be a Lusitania victim, and he was buried by Cunard, they took all the expenses, and when they were sorting out everything, his possessions and so on and so forth, they realised that he hadn't been on the Lusitania at all, he'd been on the Falaba. Ah. And he's buried in, his grave is, is in remarkable condition, his headstone is very uh, close to a, a wall in a cemetery, as a result of protected from the elements. And he lies nice and quietly in a corner of a, a, a West Kerry, uh, cemetery and nobody realises that that man under that headstone very nearly on his own brought the United States into the war. But it was, it, eventually it was the Lusitania, the sinking of the Lusitania, it, I mean it, what impact did that have? On well it was, it was an ingredient because again if America had declared war after the Falaba, if it had declared war after the Lusitania, the first thing that would have happened was America would have had to raise an army, it would have had to equip an army, it would have to raise the stockpile of munitions, that would have stopped all that war material coming to Europe, which was badly needed. So if America had declared war at that time, in, most, in many opinions, um, the Allies would have lost the war, because by the time the Americans would have everything done on their side, and then managed to get their troops over, that would have taken at least a year. America started preparing for war after, particularly the Lusitania. Now there was a slow build-up, a manageable slow build-up of an army, equipment, um, weaponry, and the Q ships, the Liberty ships that yeah. were coming across. So when America declared war in 1917, she was able to instantly yeah. come over to Europe, and that, made, and that made the difference. That, that injection of extra manpower when the British were, were after suffering uh, massive losses and the Germans, and now fresh recruits, fresh soldiers were getting scarce. And then all of a sudden, these ships arrive in, in um, Bordeaux and places, Saint Lazare, and all these fresh American, well nourished, well equipped, well trained troops are coming off. And that basically is what most people will agree 
but the phallum uh, are a little, an interesting uh, yeah, little ingredient to that whole story it as is, well. It is. It, it, it's very, very seldom people hear about it, but she was key in focusing the mind of the Americans that we better prepare for war, and then the Lusitania after that. Yeah. But the American politicians were quite um, clever, and, and you know they did it right by building up slowly, because. If they had stopped all the war materials, they'd run out of shells, they'd run out of medical equipment, they'd run out of uniforms, they'd run out of horses because horses were being transported and basically the Allied um, offensive or defence would have come to a halt. Now this is your personal project, People of the Lusitania. This, this, as far as we know, was never done by any other museum for any other exhibition like this and this is biographies of all those we know to have been on board the Lusitania when she sank. That's, that's some project. So say that again. Biographies of everyone we know on board the Lusitania. And, and we, yeah. How many? How many of it is that? Well, I reckon there was one thousand nine hundred and sixty-two. Now there's going to be disputes. There are some records we have in the um, Sydney Jones Library above in the, the University of Liverpool, where people wrote letters to Cunard convinced that relatives of theirs were on board because they said they were going on board and they've never been heard of since. Yeah. Now, were the crew members bringing people on, taking the money and not declaring them? We don't know. Yeah. There's, there is, and there were also people travelling under false names for one reason or another. So we'll never really know how many people were on board, but some of my, my, my Peers, my contemporaries say that there's, there's three names in particular that I've duplicated on. And I accept that as possible, but I'd rather remember somebody twice than forget somebody. <laughs> that's, that's the way I look yeah, at it. Yeah. You know, everybody deserves to be remembered. and Just in case you know, they are the same people. If they are the same people, well and good, but if not, it's not going to do any harm what's, remembering what's twice. The, what are the names? Uh, there's a, a man called Robert Anderson, and he's also believed to be Robert Anderson McKenzie. The, dif the difficulty with that man, where I have the, the arguments with people, is uh, Robert Anderson was, was listed as having been killed and Robert Anderson Mackenzie was listed as having survived, which he did. Mackenzie was a, an interesting character and a, a tragic case there because he was a grocer from Scotland, came to Manchester, then moved to Belfast and then moved to Dublin. And he was travelling back from America, he survived. He went back to a shop in uh, Upper um, in Cavendish Road, just off O'Connell Street, which many people know is where the Easter Rising took place in Easter 1916. The story goes that he was standing outside the shop. Uh, some of these rebels came to take over his building to use as a sniper post. He refused to let him in, and they shot him dead on, on his own doorstep. Wow. So he survived the Lusitania, and in April 1916, he was shot dead outside his own premises. Hmm. So Terrible story. So we, we have all these uh, names in here, and we have another interesting here thing is the map. So what we're doing here, there's, um, there's an interactive um, um, computer screen, hmm. and you can um, see, is this where they're from? This um, is where the crew members. Okay, so this is a, this is a map. It's like Google Maps with a um, load of dropped arrows, yeah. um, and you can see them where, where all the crew members came from. Yeah. And so they're all around so many Liverpool, Birkenhead, um, we've got uh, someone from Sunderland. Um, it That's it. It's a bit unstable at the moment. 
Blackburn. But you can see you can see where Bootle and Toxted Park, sure. Bootle to the north of the city centre, and Liverpool was expanding. Liverpool was expanding, so they were building more and more houses out from the city centre, and a lot of these were owned by railway companies and steamship companies for their workers. And today, these are still the working class areas in Liverpool, Bootle, Toxted Park, yeah. and you go up around there, you will find people that worked in the railways and the merchant, merchant navy. The history, and some of the people that I've met, some of the descendants that would be here today, live in the same houses that, that their ancestors that were on the Lusitania. Yeah. They've, they've, they've um, great affinity with, with their origins here, and these houses are passed down now through the generations. It's, wow. it, it's, some of them are still living in, at the same addresses. So we've also got um, the, these are the, the figures here. Let's explore some of the passengers. Take me through a, a couple of, is there an interesting passenger you can show me here? Well, there's quite a number, you know, we're looking here at the survival rates, first of all, and we're looking at um, 1,962 people on board and 1,191 of those were lost. So we had 771 survivors. Uh, you can go down to the crew who survived. Of the crew, 696 crew members, 405 were lost, 291 survived. Of the 1,266 passengers, 786 lost, 480 survived. But it's when you go to the classes, you can see between saloon class, second class and third class, there's almost uniformity survival de death rates, yeah. unlike other ships where sure. the, the upper class were getting the priority on the lifeboats. This was just every man and woman so and child for class, themselves. Is that first class? That would be first so class, saloon yeah. class, first class, second class and third class. Well, third class would often then be called steerage class as well, so there would be the kind of classes, you know, just over half the women yeah. survived. Infants and children. It, it's done very, very well, but this is the only place it's done. Yeah. So um, let's now explore just a, a, a couple of characters, shall we? Well, we, we have quite a number. Um, there's there's a few things that we 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 don't have today that was very much happening back then. For instance, when a woman married, she took on the nationality of her husband. So we, we have Beatrice Abbas, who was born um, in the Bristol area, and she married a, a musician uh, by the name of uh, Abbas. He was a, a famous concert violinist or whatever. So when she died, she was listed as Belgian because he was Belgian, and their two children, even though they were born in Britain, they were all Belgian citizens. Therefore, they couldn't claim yeah. of the British government. Um, who else are we? We've, we've Osmond uh, Bartle Wordsworth, who was a descendant of the great poet William Wordsworth. Ah. And his stories after taking on a new um, line recently, as recently as last October, he survived. He joined up, got a commission, and um, he was killed in action in 1917. His remains were lost. His name is recorded on the Aris Memorial to the Missing. And only a few years ago, remains were uncovered and they were positively identified as his uh, remains only recently, last October. So there's a rededication. He now has a grave after 105 years. He was killed in 1917 yeah. and he's now going to get 
recognised. So it's it's moving on all the time. Yeah. Um, there's so many people in there. You, you mentioned someone who, 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 who like Henry VIII. How how is someone like Henry VIII? There was one. Uh, I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of his name. I, it's on the tip of my tongue. But he was married six times. He's a fascinating <laughs> character. He's a fascinating character in that he he emigrated from England from London uh, at the age of 17, and it seems. He disappeared in, in uh, America for a while, and then he turns up in Kansas City, Missouri, and he spins a story that he's a, a, a lawyer. And this all appears in the press, and, and the press believe it. He then goes and he gets married to a local girl, well, not to a local girl, but in, in Kansas City, Missouri. And on the way to the wedding breakfast in the city that she's from, they take a wrong turn, they're crossing over uh, a railway track, their car is struck by a train, she's killed, and he suffers what's reported in the media as a fractured skull. Um, you would think that there'd be a period of mourning, well not with this guy, you think five weeks later he's married for a second time. He goes on honeymoon, obviously his wife found out about his lies, she leaves him, he returns to Kansas City to try and get her back, she won't talk to him, he goes into a bar, he shoots himself in the chest, Right. he survives that, he then decides he's going to do his bit for uh, his country, he comes back to England. Again, he talks his way into a commission. He gets a commission, and then, as soon as he's got his commission, he declares this bullet wound to the chest. So now he's deemed to be unfit for service. So he can't. It can't be said that he was shirking. He's volunteered. So now he's leaving the army with a commission, suffering from wounds. So he's spinning another story. He then returns to America, he introduces Greyhound Racing to New York and that area, makes a fortune, loses a fortune, gets into horses, makes a fortune, loses a fortune, marries again, that wife died, married again, we don't know what happened there, and his sixth wife survived him. He is one of the most colourful characters. Yeah. Uh, it took quite a long time now to research because you, you couldn't believe what you were reading in the media about this make, guy. Couldn't make it up. You couldn't make it up, no. no. But, um, Wonderful stuff. What, what, a, what a great story. And uh, oh, you've, you've lots and lots of others. They will be available on the internet um, shortly. We have one or two little things to do first. Yep, well, we'll uh, make sure that our listeners all get to hear about that. Now we're walking across. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cross um, towards a magnificent ship model, um, which is clearly not the Lusitania. So what are we looking at here? We're looking at the Carma- Carmania. Carmania. No, I suppose it's it, not ship. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, for the listeners, I suppose, there's no harm to mention that we had branding, we had corporate branding even back in the early 1900s. Most of the, the Cunard ships, their names ended in IA, mm-hmm. and most of the White Star ships ended in IC. So you had corporate branding as well as your uh, motifs, and you can see here the Cunard, uh, we've, we've two funnels here on, on the Carmania and they're kind of what they called ochre. They were kind of a, a reddish brown, um, about three quarters of the way up the, 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 the smokestack, and then at the very top you have black. So ships, years ago in the distance, you know, they'd, they'd see, they wouldn't be able to see the ship clearly, but they would see the, the, the smokestacks, they'd see the, and, and they'd know what line it was from. Distinctive outline, so, oh, I see, I see. This ship is particularly interesting because we mentioned earlier on about the design of the Lusitania and the Mauritania and they could be converted to armed auxiliary cruisers. That was thought about, but because of the amount of coal that those ships used to consume, they were deemed to be uneconomical, it would cost too much. You know, the Mauritania, after the sinking of the Lusitania, did become a hospital ship. But Carmania was converted into an auxiliary cruiser. And it did have a sea battle and it did sink an auxiliary, a German auxiliary cruiser, cruiser down around South America. And it's the only instance of a passenger ship that was converted to an armed auxiliary, auxiliary cruiser actually sinking, engaging in battle and sinking another armed auxiliary cruiser. So that, that's, that's what's unique. Now she served for many, many years. She was one of the flagships of the Cunard um, line. And this particular model is, is magnificent. It must be, what, nine feet long. Yes. And so we can see a, the a stacks. It's a model. It's a fantastic. Yeah, it is absolutely fantastic. It's a beautiful, beautiful model. And that's, that's the Carmania. Let's talk briefly about the, um, the, the reputation that Cunard has um, for safety. Up to the First World War, their safety record was, was impeccable. Um, Samuel Cunard, with his, his Scottish background, it was all about dependability. Now, he had no, he was, he was a, a businessman in Canada. His parents had emigrated. Samuel was born in, in Canada, but obviously the Scotch influence was very, very much part of his life. And hard work and good name were, were, were very, very important to, to him and, and, and people like him. But there was a tender uh, offered for um, transporting the mail, the Royal Mail from North America to uh, England or British Isles back to Europe and Cunard saw an opportunity with a number of other businessmen so they invested but it was Cunard's name was up there and that's the only real name we have for it and it was all about making sure the mail got there so he cut no corners there was no risk taken he didn't he didn't employ risky captains he he employed steady people and he trusted them to employ steady people to crew so Deadlines were there, obviously, and the longer a ship was at sea, it was costing more money. Cunard, Samuel Cunard was more concerned about delivering 
on his word and that was getting things across. So if a captain was late for a day, he didn't get into a whole lot of trouble if he was able to explain for weather reasons, tides or whatever it was. Once there was a genuine reason, that was fine. And that all went on until the First World War and they never lost a, um, a passenger. Um, obviously people did pass away at sea from illnesses and so on, but never through an accident. And this is where their company built up its reputation. Dependability, reliability and safety. And you know, we think back in the 1800s, this, Cunard started business in 1840, and we know that you know, safety wasn't, health and safety wasn't a big yeah. thing, especially with employers, all they wanted to do was make money. Cunard was different, and he influenced other shipping lines as well, because they saw he was doing it in a correct way, he was getting business, so they said, well, if it's working for him, we better do it. The other curious thing about Cunard as a company was they would take on young lads and they'd start them off as ratings and they'd come up to seamen, able seamen, and then they'd start doing their officer courses and getting their officer certificates. When they got to a certain level, they then had to leave Cunard. And Cunard would watch them from a distance as they got their first commands. And it was like, as if they're going to mess up, they're not going to mess up with my ship. <laughs> Someone they're else going to mess up, no. Yeah, you can come back. If they, if they worked away for a year, a year and a half, and they hadn't sunk anything, or they hadn't demolished a key wall or something, um, and they came back to Cunard, then they would get a position, more than likely, as an officer. William Turner, that was the captain of the Lusitania when it sank, that's how his career progressed. He had to leave Cunard for a number of years, and come back and then he moved up along he started off as a third officer second officer first officer until he eventually got command of various vessels and he ended his days as the commander of the Cunard fleet he was the, the their highest uh, master highest ranked master commodore story now let's um we'll finish up let's let's wander over and, and look at those medals because they were fantastic yes so walking back through the exhibition now there's a was it a bed from a cabin? It was a yeah, wonderful bed from cabin C97 from RMS Olympic. Yes. Gives you a sense of, um, of, of, the, of the, the luxury. And oh, there's a life jacket here. Let's just have a quick chat about this. <coughs> this is the only surviving complete life jacket of this type from the sinking of the Lusitania. It was kept as a souvenir by a man from Cape Clear Island off the southern coast of Ireland. Cunard offered cash rewards to local fishermen for retrieving bodies. Not sure I'd, uh, I'd trust that to keep me afloat very long. Well, Can you describe it to us, Peter? If you if you look at it, 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 it's a canvas belt, I suppose, about eight inches in width, and it's filled with uh, flotation devi devices uh, or, or some substance, yeah. some sort of foam or sponge or something. Obviously, they didn't have polystyrene and that what, what they're using today. But this tied around the waist and. Um, it doesn't look to be too effective. <laughs> it's not. It's not like the one where you put yeah. your arms through and wear like a vest, the proper vest. No. So this one was wrapped around the body and secured with thin shoulder straps, and those yeah. straps themselves have been cut, um, suggesting it was removed from a body that had been recovered. You see, there's no. Again, when we look at it here, most of or what we have today, they protect the head. So even if you're unconscious in the water, you know it, they're designed that naturally your head would be above water. There's nothing here to support the head, so if you're slumped, you can turn any direction. The other thing we know from survivors 
is that some people, if you put them on in reverse, they turn you over for some reason. Really? Yeah. Feet up in the air? Yeah. Like a duck? So yeah, exactly. So it, there was a way of putting it on. If you didn't put it on right, you turn turtle. And people didn't know. And they had only 18 minutes to figure it out. And if you didn't figure it out, that was it. Well, now these medals are uh, a magnificent story here. Um, the Lusitania Medallion. So we're looking at a case now. There are one, two, three, four, five, five similar-looking medallions, but gosh, they're all different, aren't they? Well, there, there's, there's actually four. There's two of um, one particular medal here. Uh, three and four are the reverse in the front of... Uh, so what happened here... Describe them. So, um, you have, you have um, a picture of a ship. No, it doesn't look very uh, like the Lusitania, but it, it, it's a model of a ship. It's a generic kind of a, 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 an etching of a ship on metal. And a couple of inches. It, it, yeah, it, they're two and a half, two and a quarter to two and a half inches in diameter. And So we're looking, let's look at this first one, the original by um, Goetz. So yeah. this is a medal which has been created by um, the German art medalist Karl Goetz. Um, he produced a commemorative medal marking Lusitania's sinking. Why, why were the, what were the Germans commemorating this with? Well, this, this, this was something that was done in Europe, um, particularly in the late 1800s. They would commemorate um, events uh, by making medals. And we, we still have it today. Um, you know, they give away Jubilee medals, they give long service medals. You know, in the military and the police, there's a culture of medals, and we, we you have civilian awards here in, in the United Kingdom. So, this was just what was in vogue in the day. Now, Carol Goetz was a very famous medal maker in Berlin, and he made this medal which shows the Lusitania sinking by the stern. So, we can see the bow is, is to the right hand side is, is up, and you have. Which is wrong. Yeah, which, exactly. So, it's usually went down by, by the bow. Yeah, so you have aircraft and artillery pieces falling off the deck. So this is obviously reference to the fact that this is um, carrying military contraband. Yeah. On the reverse of the middle, which we, we move over to here, we have a skeleton behind uh, a ticket window selling tickets for the Lusitania. Uh, and these are the unsuspecting passengers being sold the, the tickets by Dr. Death. And behind on the left-hand side you have somebody uh, with um, a newspaper showing that the Lusitania is going to be sunk. So this was a depiction of the fact that um, the British government and Cunard were playing with the lives of innocent people. Mm. The, and and they, were, they were kind of protecting their, their cargo by a human shield, innocent human shield. Now what happened here was Carl Goetz, when he made the original medal, he got the date wrong. He put the 5th of May. And it's the 7th of May. So and it was the 7th of May. Days. So a number of these medals found their way to England and the propagandists immediately saw an opportunity. This now was proof positive that the Germans had conspired to sink the Lusitania. This was no mistake, that the Lusitania had been deliberately targeted. The difficulty was that they got their day wrong. No, it seems to have been a genuine mistake because in the second edition medal by Goetz, he's changed the date to the 7th of May. So when the medal made its way to England, it was Lord Sainsbury 
Sainsbury supermarkets. He had 300,000 of these medals made in iron as a propaganda tool. And he, the proceeds went to the Dunstable Blind Sailors Hospital. And he sold them in a nice little presentation box, which is about three inches squared, with a depiction of the Lusitania. And there was um, a little flimsy leaflet, uh, smaller than the A4 sized, was sold with that, which would tell you the story. And um, this was German barbarity, uh, um, barbarism, and um, they couldn't be trusted, and so on. The last one is the biggest one, and the this. Dance of the dead. Yeah, this um, another German medal, which yeah. was less well known. No, the French made a medal as well. I actually have a copy of a French medal. So, there were, and, and I think the Belgians. So there was a number of these um, these medals that were made. Um, so this shows death as a skeleton looking at the sinking Lusitania. Yeah. That's morbid, isn't it? The Germans celebrating this. This is a year afterwards, so 1916. Yeah. So, I mean, this was what people did at the time. And, you know, you even go back to that. This, this is where the rise of the tarot cards and all that. People yeah. were getting into all this sort of thing at that time. So, depictions of death, um, skeletons and so on, that was pretty normal for that time. Um, but the, 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 the ghost medals are quite rare. You yeah, so the original them. ones with the wrong date, so yeah. May the 5th, 1915. If you've got and one of these at home, any of the listeners, it's probably worth a few bucks. Well, <laughs> a tip for you, if you want to know whether the medal is genuine or false, get a magnet. And if the magnet sticks to the medal, you've got a replica. That's the iron one. Goat's medal, original medal, the, uh, the magnet won't stick. But of course now with people um, being expert forgers and mm. things like that, they can make these things to perfection nowadays, so yeah. I'd be very, very slow, even if I was offered one now today. Well, I wouldn't be able to afford it anyway, but people can make, make great forgeries at this stage. Well, I think that's a great place to end our little tour. Peter, thank you so much well, no. for taking me around. Thank you, Sam. Many thanks indeed for listening. Now please check out all of the other episodes on the Lusitania. There's tons more stuff to find as well. If you're interested in anything maritime or shipwrecks or the First World War, whatever it might be, there's something for you, I promise. In particular, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube channel where there is some really innovative new film. Now, uh, this podcast comes from both the Lloyds Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research, so please do take the time to check out what those guys have been up to. You can find the Lloyds Register Foundation's History Centre and Archive at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk. And the Society for Nautical Research is at snr.org.uk, where you can join up to enjoy all of the numerous perks of membership, including four copies of the printed Mariner's Mirror Journal each year, online access access to over a century's worth of maritime history scholarship, online seminars, and you can even come to dinner on board HMS Victory. What a treat. <laughs>